Okay, so if you're listening to this pod, you're probably an entrepreneur or a professional with a high paying job. This means you have a bit of money and the ambition to make a heap more of it. You see, we hear stories about entrepreneurs making money, but how do you preserve it? Or more importantly, ensure your kids don't waste it. See, as a parent, how do you ensure you don't raise soft entitled brats? What I've learned is that multi-generational wealth doesn't just happen. And nobody knows more about how to keep your money in the family than today's guest. Hi, Jason Andrew here, and you're listening to Stark Naked Numbers, the podcast that strips down the numbers of business, investing, and wealth creation to help you become a better entrepreneur and investor and ultimately build your net worth. Today, we're joined by Mike Boyd. He's the co-owner and CEO of The Vroom Group, a giant in the car rental space, and the founder of Prosura, a global insurance intermediary. But he's also the man behind Mudbrick Capital, a family holding company that builds, buys, and operates business for the long term, and the host of an awesome podcast, The Business of Family, that breaks down how successful families hold on to their wealth across generations. In this episode, we discuss holding companies, long-term capital compounding, and strategies to manage intergenerational wealth. These are a few of my favorite things. It's a ripper of a pod. Okay, so Mike, you and I met only recently, uh, and I felt compelled to get you on this podcast because that you're an interesting guy and your business journey is, is unconventional to a lot of folks. So, uh, Mike, uh, can you give us a rundown of the businesses, um, how you got started, a bit about yourself? Jason, thanks for having me. It's, um, you know, starting by calling me unconventional, you may as well just call me a weirdo. I am an <laughs> entrepreneur. I, I'm used to getting those strange looks and, you know, but that's part of the journey in that we take unconventional paths and we earn unconventional outcomes, you know, and, and that's part of the joy of of being an entrepreneur and building businesses and, and wealth and things. So, um, look, I own a, um, a, a family holding company called Mudbrick and uh, within Mudbrick, we own a bunch of uh, digital companies. I call them digital intangibles. And um, that really means we have no physical component. So we're not running e-commerce businesses. We're not, you know, dealing with freight or inventory management or perishables. We're dealing with things like software as a service, information products, um, affiliate or commission-based model, um, anything that can scale infinitely in, a, in an intangible way is sort of what I define as a digital intangible. So, you know, I'll start, I guess, with a high-level picture of what we own and operate today. Um, you know, and in being an entrepreneur, I say that we, we build, we buy, and we operate these digital ventures. Um, a little bit agnostic as to whether or not we, we get the glory of being the founder or whether or not we uh, act to in, in scaling it and, um, and professionalizing it. That doesn't really matter. It's more about where we can add value. So um, today we own a flagship company called Vroom Vroom Vroom, which is the largest car rental comparison website, car rental aggregator in the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, what does that mean? That means that it's a website like Webjet or Booking.com or Expedia. Uh, you know, we're an online travel agency, but we work exclusively in ground transport. So we make bookings for Hertz, Avis, Budget, Thrifty, Europe Car, all of those brands, and we book cars all over the world. Um, that business I didn't start. I've been involved um, as an owner and operator of that business for the last 12 years. And and that was an example of where I was sort of the, the second act, um, scaling it, professionalizing it and taking it to the world. Um, that's been a wonderful platform business. Um, it's been around for 22 and a half years, which is a really long time in, in internet uh, timelines, you know, sort of the age of the modern internet. 
Um, is that before cloud? Was it a desktop before then, or is it a bit beyond? Uh, that? No, it was just at the beginning of cloud. But yeah. you know, it's we can talk about what it was. And in, in the very early days, it was a static website with some coupon codes. Yeah, and nice. then about five years in, four, four or five years in, the first booking engine was built. You know, and and the first connectivity to car rental companies. Um, you know, and today it is a you know it's a beast with with very custom software we power a lot of b2b partners uh, a lot of airports use us a lot of uh, other travel companies use our technology so there's a there's a b2c play a b2b play and and everything in between um but it was humble beginnings like most like most businesses so um that's one big pillar then i founded another business in in 2014 off the back of that uh, after spotting a gap in the market which was the insurance offering to car rental customers. There wasn't a suitable um, third-party product that was great value and covered the risk in case you had an accident while you were driving the rental car. Uh, and a lot of our customers were giving us feedback that the pressure sell, the upsell environment when they arrived at the rental desk was you know, way over the top and the excess waiver product that they were being pushed really wasn't very good value. You know, it was, it was you know, it'd add thirty-five or forty-five dollars per day after you'd already booked the car, and um, it had a long list of exclusions, like if you chipped the windscreen or or uh, you know ran a flat tire. Those things weren't even included. So, we set about um, trying to find an insurance provider for a couple of years. Uh, didn't have any luck, and ultimately decided that while we knew nothing about financial services or insurance or or the regulatory environment, we were going to learn and um, got the permission of the other um, Vroom shareholder and ultimately decided that if we built it, uh, Vroom would be our first partner in terms of distributing the product and, and upselling the customers. And we launched that business after quite a lot of pre-work and, and diligence and effort in uh, September 2014. And September 2014 was our first profitable month. So it was a, it was a pretty, um, pretty so special kind of a digital intangible. So you are are you an underwriter of the insurance, or are you just passing the? You actually insure the vehicles yourselves, like on your no, we don't insure the vehicles. And this is, I guess, probably a theme that I'd love to weave throughout today's conversation. We found a niche, and the niche is that we simply insure the risk that the individual takes when renting the car. The vehicle itself is insured by Hertz or Avis. So, if you're renting the car, typically you sign a a rental contract. And that says that you have a, a liability of five or $6,000 in Australia. That's pretty typical. In other parts of the world, it might be two or $3,000. And that means that if you're in an accident or if you scrape a pole in a car park or what have you, you're liable for the first, let's say, $5,000. Over and above that, the car rental company's insurance kicks in, provided you weren't doing anything illegal or you weren't drunk driving or what have you. So that liability is called your excess on their insurance. And what we do is insure your excess. We don't insure the car. We don't insure any assets that aren't ours because we don't own the vehicle. We yeah. insure you driving that vehicle for your five-day trip. And so the, our total liability that we're taking risk on is a five-day trip and a total max liability in that scenario of about $5,000. And that's what we underwrite and take the risk on. Gotcha. Um, when we first launched the product, we partnered with a global carrier, which was Allianz. We worked with them to develop the product, bringing our industry knowledge and, and all of the stats and data that we had from the car rental industry um, and, and effectively wrote a PDS document with them and then helped 
um, to manage it, but they handled claims and and the official, the regulatory side. That served us for the first um, six years. And then in 2020, we transitioned and took on even more responsibility, um, achieved our own Australian financial services license, brought it all in-house. Now we underwrite, price, issue, manage, distribute, and manage Holy claims crap. of the That's whole thing to end. So, you know, that was after we we figured out what we were doing, learned some sophistication, and ultimately found, you know, some extra margin where we could operate it more efficiently than a global giant like Allianz yeah. um, and roll out some more tech and automation across that whole stack too, of course. So, you know, that's been a, a really interesting journey. Fascinating. Um, so you start with the platform asset, you've essentially got distribution um, and you're capturing the market. Uh, you realize that, hey, the insurance element of this sucks. Um, let's create one. So you built it on the back of that. What other, what, what other business have you spun off though that, of that platform asset? Yeah, off that platform asset, we've spun off a couple of um, software as a service offerings as well. So they're, they're still owned by the Vroom Group, but they are effectively different business lines. Um, so the first one is a, a SaaS platform called Champ, which uh, stands for Car Hire Accident Management Platform, which is quite a mouthful. But effectively, what we do is we we offer that SaaS offering to major insurers who need to book replacement rental cars for their own insured customers when they're in an accident. So I'm no longer talking about when Jason's on holiday. So I'm now talking about you know Jason's driving his Tesla around town in Brisbane. Unfortunately, someone runs up the back of Jason and it needs to go into the panel beaters to be repaired. And you know, you're not going to have your car for two weeks. You call your insurer, you make a claim, and they say, hey, you're entitled under your policy to a free rental car for up to 14 days, you know, a compact car, something simple, but we can get you from A to B while your car's being repaired. Now, insurers in Australia spend hundreds of millions of dollars on on that little niche alone called replacement cars. They're booking a lot of replacement rental cars for their customers in that exact scenario um, every day. And so we built some software to make that a whole lot easier. We took the same innovative B2C technology that Vroom had and we modified the booking engine and and sort of built some case management and workflow management uh, tools over the top of it for their uh, call center and B2B environment. So now it interfaces directly with their claims software. An entitlement is created. The customer gets to, you know, get sent a link where they can choose their own car through a self-service uh, with business rules, which means they can't book, you know, a Maserati. They can book an equivalent car or a compact, whatever they're entitled to under their policy. We manage all of that. Um, the billing goes back to the insurer in most cases, and you know, the software also helps to rec- uh, reconcile all the invoices for tens of thousands of individual rentals each month across different rental providers and different insurers. So again, it was uh, something we spun off the core platform business. It was something that we got exposure to because we were already playing in car rental and we were already learning the insurance industry. That sort of just, you know, I, I often think about it in terms of a Venn diagram with circles that overlap. We found that sweet spot in the middle and and an opportunity to exploit and add value to. So that was the first one. The second SaaS that we built was um, called Ratency. And this is, um, you know, I, I love this one. It's a smaller one, but it's really special in that um, this is the sawdust of our operations. This is the stuff that we're doing anyway. 
um, in, in operating our Vroom business and someone came and knocked on the door one day and said, hey, can we have those scrapings off the floor? We like that stuff that's spun off that you, you have no value in. We'd like yeah. to pay you for. And so Ragency is a data business um, that stores all of the historical car rental rates, the daily rates at different locations, different car types for different um, durations of rent uh, at every single location in Australia and New Zealand and we store that a couple of times a day. So if you multiply out the various combinations of choosing which car rental company, which car class, which duration, et cetera, et cetera, there's a couple of billion rows of data that we store uh, every year. Now, the reason we do this is because we were started to be approached again by insurers and law firms asking us if we could tell them what the cost of a Corolla was in Parramatta on the 11th of April 2021 um, for a five-day rental. And we said, that is a really specific request, you know, like for a start, that's a couple of years ago. Uh, and to look, I don't know, we, we never stored that stuff unless we had a booking in our, in our system that matched that, you know? So of course we'd, yeah. we would store the booking criteria if someone booked a car in Parramatta that day for exactly five days and it happened to be a Corolla. But if we didn't, then I'd couldn't tell you what that price was because we didn't bother to store it. And we quickly learned that they were asking for this data because um, the lawyers were using it to litigate against loss of use claims. There's a very old um, part of our law that comes from English law that refers to loss of chattels, loss of use. And if you're in an accident like I described before, someone runs up the back of you, uh, damages your car, you were not at fault but you lost use of your vehicle for two weeks because it had to go and be repaired. Uh, under that, and under your consumer rights, effectively, you're entitled to some sort of replacement car, even if your own individual insurance policy didn't provide for it, because the other, the at fault party and their insurer is responsible for providing that to you. Now, a lot of people don't know that they have that entitlement, but a whole industry popped up a bit of an ambulance chasing industry, if you like. It's kind of like um, personal injury law. They they would go and generate all these leads by having deals with tow truck drivers and other people that were first to the accident scene. And they would say, hey, you know, you've been in this accident, Jason. It's not your fault. Did you know we can give you a free rental car? Just sign here and we will pursue the other party for you. Won't cost you a thing. You just have to rent it from us. Sign here and we'll, and, and we'll pursue it on your behalf. Win-win for the customer. You know, great outcome for you you've got wheels for the next couple of weeks and away you go. The, the trouble is that some three or four months later, after the repairs complete and the, the claims are settled and it's all done, the insurer gets a bill out of the blue because they never knew this rental took place. The insurer gets a bill for an inflated amount for the rental, you know, not equivalent to what you would have paid to Hertz or Avis, but instead an inflated amount because they just made up the price. They just happened to be in yeah. the right place at the right time. And of yeah. course, they offered you a BMW instead of a Corolla because uh, yeah. that's all they happen to have and, and they cost more. And then they upsold you on the insurance and you needed you know, a GPS and two car seats and all of the bells and whistles added to it. And so in a couple of months time, out of the blue, the insurance company gets a bill for a few thousand dollars for this replacement car that they didn't even know was part of the, the loss related to this claim. And under the law, unless they can prove that there was an equivalent alternate at a cheaper price at exactly that time and place and, and, and location, they have to pay the bill. And 
hence ratency was oh. born. We started storing every single so piece of good. data. Amazing. And, you know, we can now sell access to that database and major insurers and the lawyers that represent them pay us simply to be able to pr- produce a report to say that Corolla was available for $55 a day, not $180 a day that you were charged. And I love that. they use that to, to settle their cases and uh, save a lot of money. And obviously, we make a bit of money from selling them data. So it's, it's an incredible um, product where we get to sell the offcuts of what we do anyway. That's so good. Um, so it's funny because you, you start with the platform asset and you've basically spun off multiple businesses off the core thing, solving slightly different problems, but addressing different parts of the, I guess, the car rental insurance supply chain or the ecosystem, like what other ideas or products have you considered spinning off or are you um, working on at the minute that you can share? <laughs> I don't or know if, or can... if you had the time or if you had the time, what would you pursue perhaps? Yeah, yeah. Look, I think that there is something advantageous to pursuing what you know, you know, very intimately. Our advantage is that one where the, the platform asset allows us to be the biggest in the space so we have connections. Yeah. Yeah. Um, two, it gives us enough data to sort of spot opportunities at the fringe. Um, you know, we're not doing five car rental bookings a day. We're doing hundreds or thousands. And across that platform, we spot opportunities. Um, it's a very old industry. And so there is naturally opportunities to innovate. You know, the, one of the things that's been on our radar for some time is that, um, you know, we're largely a B2C business, a leisure rental business. If you're going on holiday, you rent a car with, with Broom. But if you work for, you know, BHP Billiton, you don't book a car with Vroom as much as I'd like them to. They have, you know, some internal corporate travel, uh, corporate account, and that, you know, they have to book through their own stream. So it's reconciled internally. But those corporate account um, management is is extremely unsophisticated and um, ripe for disruption. But at the same time, it's not really core to what we do. And so it's something we're learning about to say, what would it look like if we work directly with businesses? And if we did, which part of the stack makes most sense? You know, Do we go mm. and play with um, the ASX 100 and try and solve it for the, for the top end of town? Or are we trying to help SMEs who maybe don't have the, the purchasing power to get the best corporate rates because they're only renting you know, five cars a year across their business for maybe a, a traveling salesperson traveling interstate? And, and perhaps there's an opportunity for us to aggregate some of that scale effectively into a virtual corporate account and, or a co-op and, uh, and produce a, a corporate account facility for SMEs, but a great number of SMEs. And you know the challenges to that is that in this country, a lot of car rental is, is pay on arrival. You book through us and you pay at the rental desk, which, which is great because we're not doing credit card transactions at scale and you know it's far simpler. We have paid a commission on the back end. Um, but in corporate accounts, it's the opposite. They want to book a car and have it billed back to the entity so that the finance team can, you know, pay for it and, and the employees not out of pocket. And so it's just, you know, finding ways of solving the same sort of problem, but in different ways for the industry and sort of how long is a piece of string. There's lots of things to, to pursue there. And it really comes down to a question of, of capital allocation of time and, and dollars, is it appropriate to keep spinning off this course um, platform or is it more appropriate to diversify into mm. other industries and other, other product types just to ensure that, you know, if another COVID rolls around, 
we don't have all our assets in the travel basket. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And I guess it would be would have been tempting, like it, when you didn't have all the other. If you didn't move into the insurance category, you would think, "Cool, we're you know number one aggregator of um, rental cars in Australia." You it could have been, "Okay, cool, let's move into aggregating." Um, not just cars, but like air, airlines or other modes of transport. I'd go, go, go right down that whole like, leisure travel, um, that, yep. that category. But instead, you went to insurance, uh, which is, I, I assume, high margin, more robust, um, more defensible, less um, less seasonal uh, in, different, in different ways. So um, I guess there's many paths you can take in it, but the one you've taken makes logical sense in, in my yeah, mind when you look backwards, I guess. Logic and defensible are sort of key words I picked up on there. It it took a lot of discipline too, I would add, um, because looking from the outside, you know, if I talk to people who've never heard of it before, if I'm talking to people overseas and they haven't heard of Room, I say we we own an online travel agency and we do car rental and what have you, and they go, oh great, so you know you're a booking.com and you've got hotels and flights and and tours and activities and all these things. And I go, no, no, we just do ground transport, and and that shocks a lot of people. But had we attempted. Um, you know, in the in the 2010s to to go into that space, we were too far behind by the time. You know, remember I've been in this for 12 years. Um, that that market was already well established. Uh, you have to know where you're playing and and what the market opportunity is. Vroom, to some extent, got very lucky in that in the early 2000s when it launched here in Australia, um, it was the time of what if. You know, what if was the biggest um, hotel aggregator in Australia at the time. And they had no interest in doing cars. In fact, they spoke to us about it a couple of times to sort of you know white label our technology. But they were very focused on just becoming a behemoth and trying to own the market in uh, hotel and accommodation. And because they had such market share at the time, they almost provided a bit of umbrella shade uh, for Vroom to grow and and um, develop without the attention of all of the international players. We didn't have to go up against Expedia and Booking.com and uh, you know all of the big guys because what if, to some extent, protected us? Um, not that they meant to, but, but we seized that opportunity and became so big that uh, then no one could catch us, you know, and that was sort of our moat. And so for us to then say, okay, the next logical step is hotels was just silly because yeah, we gotcha. didn't have the firepower uh, or the capital to to compete with those listed multinationals. So instead it was, how can we find the next niche that is defensible where we can uh, develop IP that no one else can or, or at least is difficult for others to develop um, and, and get so far ahead again that you know we earn some competitive advantage or some defensibility. And you know, as I led with, that took a lot of discipline to not just chase the shiny stuff and, and get into flights and hotels and activities. But I think it's part of the reason why we're still here 22 years later. Yeah, that's incredible. So you mentioned earlier that, you know, your role in Vroom was the second time around. It was already already a business or some form of a business. How did you get um, into, I guess, the, the cap table? How did you get involved with the company in the first place? Yeah, so look, I might even rewind a little bit further back Um to, to share my journey because it sort of was somewhat serendipitous how I ended up there. Um, I I was always an entrepreneur, you know, I was the guy that was fishing out golf balls out of the the local, you know, pond and creek at the, at the golf club and selling it back to people for 30 right. cents and 50 cents yeah. and a dollar. And, you know, that was my first lemonade stand. And 
and you know was hooked and, and was always just interested as a kid. I, I didn't know I wanted to be an entrepreneur because, of course, I didn't know what that was and I certainly didn't know how to spell it. But it was more I, I had an affinity for, hey, I, I want to pursue something more. I want to be successful. I don't know what that looks like. Maybe maybe that means I need to be a lawyer. They seem to drive nice cars. Or you know, <laughs> as, a, as a kid, you're just trying to pattern match. You're trying to find models and. Um, you know, I didn't come from a, a wealthy family. We, you know, we had a wonderful, you know, middle class uh, upbringing with a wonderful family, uh, you know, went to public schools and, and all of that stuff. Um, so I was working really hard to just try and be exposed to, you know, how do I, how do I change my circumstances? Because I just had this internal drive. I ended up starting businesses in high school, um, which were, you know, colossal failures, but wonderful bits of street smarts education really didn't want to go to university, uh, although you know, I had the academics and, and all of that, but really didn't want to go, wanted to figure out how to build businesses. And, and it, it was incredibly important to my parents that I, I got a tertiary education. So somewhat reluctantly went and you know, did, a, did a couple of degrees, but didn't spend a great deal of time there. I was building businesses on the side. And one of those early businesses was a, a party hire company that I started when I was 17. Uh, and it was born out of the frustration that I wanted to be the cool kid uh, who when <laughs> I still want to be the cool kid by the way uh, but when I turned 18 I wanted to have a keg a beer keg at my at my 18th birthday and I was one of the older kids in the grade and I thought you know if I if I set the standard for 18th birthdays then I'm going to be able to go to all these other birthdays for the next year and they're all going to have to be epic so I'd seen these um, visions of kegs you know in American movies with the red cups in the backyard and I just thought it all looked so cool in Australia, it was a completely different beast. You know, I, I called around to the local pubs and clubs and, and Googled and tried to find people in the yellow pages back then and all of that. Long story short, I couldn't find a service provider. Um, and ultimately, the, the 18th came and went. I didn't have a beer keg. And the, the frustration of that grew and I couldn't believe that, you know, it didn't exist in a, in a big capital city where I lived. And so I ultimately thought I, I might mess around with this. I might play. And I built my own little website, which they just taught us how to do in school. And I owned, you know, keghirebrisbane.com or something like that. And I, I messed around with a one-page site. And then I took off on my first ever backpacking trip to, to, uh, to Asia. I took myself overseas with a mate. And while we were over there, I started getting all these random emails from people saying, hey, mate, can I have a keg this weekend? How much for a 50-liter keg? How much for a 4X Gold? <laughs> all this stuff. Like, What's going on? I haven't even launched this business yet. And you know, long story short, it was this um, incredible introduction to the world of search engine optimization and, and keywords and content because uh, I was ranking number one in Google for, for Keg Hire Brisbane. Keg because, Hire Brisbane, right? Yeah. Because I was <laughs> right. You know, my, my idea was validated. There was other people that were craving a keg, um, yeah. couldn't find one. And my half-built website was was what they were finding. And so that was my market validation. And I came back and um, borrowed $5,000 and ordered some equipment from the US and ultimately became a not a not a seller of beer. You could buy that from the pubs, but I, I was renting the equipment to dispense beer kegs in Australia, you know, gotcha. which was, which was yeah. gas and the chilling and all of that. Yeah. Um, and so we expanded, ran that for three years uh, while I was at uni, which was great fun. You know, it was all 18ths and 21sts and I was the guy in the beer business while you're that age. It was you know, made me so definitely, you, you're the cool guy. Yeah. I finally became the cool guy. <laughs> Not only that, I had a fair bit of cash in my pocket too, you know, because it was, it was all cash on delivery and, um, good money. And, and lots of fun. Um, but in that three years, we never spent a cent on advertising. You know, we, we, we learned street smart skills. Like 
we would offer to send a free photographer to college parties and they would show up and, and take a bunch of photos to capture the fun moment. And then we would post them on Facebook and tag all of the attendees in it with a watermark of the of the coolie bar keg hire. Love it. And um, you know, we got free distribution and, and free lead gen and all of that stuff. And of course, we continued the content game and continued to rank well um and, and earned all of this free uh free eyeballs, if you like. And so at the time, uh, or a similar time. I was eager to try and find my tribe of other entrepreneurs. You know, I was around a lot of people that were on an academic path and that wasn't for me. And I decided to expand a, an entrepreneur group to Brisbane called The Hive. And I launched that and, and also operated that for three years. But it was a, a not-for-profit where we ran an event once a month. We invited a prominent entrepreneur from the community to come and tell their story. And we were mostly students or early-stage entrepreneurs just trying to find our way. And, uh, you know, the events were free and, and it was held on a Tuesday night and we got free space and a free microphone and all these things. But I became the guy up the front on the microphone introducing people. I became the guy that was reaching out to the speakers. You know, I became the guy that was just synonymous with the hive and entrepreneurship generally. And what I've since learned is that what I was doing was increasing my luck surface area. You know, I, it became my my serendipity engine. It was sort of before the days of podcasts and YouTube and TikTok and all of that stuff, but I was putting myself out there. And so, again, that free media was earning me opportunities. And what happened was a number of the speakers who we invited to come and tell their story um, sort of took me under their wing because they, they had an affinity for someone that was young and had a bit of hustle and was was doing these things even though I wasn't getting paid to do it and I was building community. And a number of those big businesses said, hey, Mike, what do you do? And I said, well, look, I'm at uni, but I don't really want to be there, but I'm running this party hire company. It goes all right. And, and the conversation would inevitably turn to how did you build that to the scale that you have? And I'd tell them about digital marketing and social media marketing and all these things that were sort of just becoming buzzwords. And they said, oh, I've heard about that. Well, my, my grandkids have been talking about that. Can you come and talk to me about that? And, you know, long story short, I ended up in some in some boardrooms and talking to marketing teams for some pretty massive companies and uh, decided that I was no longer in the party hire business. So I was now a digital marketing consultant and, you know, I was going to charge good dollars to, to share what I'd learn, which was fun. I, I did that for a while, but ultimately learned that selling time or selling hours for dollars was was not scalable and, and was not how I was going to build a big business. But to me, it was all education. I was just getting exposure to incredible people. And, um, you know, to round out this conversation of how did you get into what you're into today, uh, I'll come back to that increasing the luck surface area because the Hive events that I ran for three years and the community I built ultimately led to me meeting my wife which I think was pretty lucky, but it also led me to the opportunity of meeting uh, one of the early employees and minor shareholders of Vrom Vrom Vrom. And he uh, reached out to me some years later and said, hey, Mike, can you come in? I know you've, you've got a bit more of a commercial head, but you're also no digital, which is you know a pretty small world in Brisbane those days. Um, you know, We're having a, a bit of trouble with a contract with Hertz or, or some other commercial matter can you come in and, and give us a bit of advice? And I said, yeah, of course. Went in thinking it was going to be two hours, um, found so much opportunity and, and, and so much scrappiness to the startup. You know, it was a wonderful business that had, had uh, early success, but really was a startup. It didn't have any systems or structure or professionalization, didn't really have 
a management team or a board of directors or any sort of financial reporting. But it was it was bursting at the scene. It wanted to grow, but it was you know to some extent held back. And um, and I ended up consulting to them for a day a week for a year, and and they asked me to come on full time, which I said no um, three times. I said no because I said, look, I'm an entrepreneur. I have to I have to build my own build thing. It's just how I'm wired. Yeah, 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 you know, like this is just scratch, yeah. this is not going to work well for either of us if I say yes. Um, <laughs> So, so I just continued consulting for a bit. They approached me again. I said no. And, you know, long story short, at, at the time I'd moved on to building a, a software as a service business in the mining and engineering space. Um, I'm quite industry agnostic. It's more about the business model. Yeah. And uh, I'd partnered with two older guys that are a bit further ahead who were funding it. And I was in there for sweat equity, you know, building, running the team day to day. And, um, and that startup collapsed spectacularly. Um, when we learned that they were shuffling cash between entities and and it wasn't actually a going concern and, and you know it was all anyway it caught fire and disappeared and, and and my world was upside down very very quickly and the fourth call about joining Vroom full time came two days after that and they had no idea that my other startup had imploded and uh, so I sort of had to feign ignorance and, and, and you go, oh, gee, yeah, okay, well, I think you sort of finally twisted my arm. And <laughs> yeah. you know, the, the fourth offer came. Fourth call, you did it. Yeah. Fourth call, you did it. You know, it, and also the, the, key, the key consideration was they called and said, look, we love what you're doing. We want you to do more of it. We know you're an entrepreneur. We want you to take equity in the business and grow it like it's your own. And, you know, then it was just everything fell into place. I, I went full time the, the next week. And um, the rest is history, as they say. So accelerate a few years. And, and the original gentleman that reached out to me for help um, was eager to move on and be creative and build other stuff. And so I ended up buying him out yeah. um, and a couple of other minor shareholders. And from that point on, about 10 years ago, um, I've been you know one of two shareholders. There's two families that own it today. And um, you know, it's been a, a wonderful platform to which we then built and, and grew from. And the insurance business and, and other things we've built, I've since founded and, and you know, been the driving force behind those. What a wonderful story. Um, so how do you personally spend your time? You've got, what, I can't, what, five businesses or probably more. It's probably a couple you haven't mentioned. Yeah, where do you spend your time as, I guess, majority shareholder slash founder slash problem solver? Yeah, I'm a bit of a slasher. That's right. It's sort of, you know, which hat am I wearing today or yeah, which hat exactly. am I wearing in this conversation? Yeah. Um, and, but look, that's what keeps me interested. You know, I love to I love to be across different things and adding value to different things. And and there are other businesses and investments that sit outside the Vrom group as well, which are completely unrelated to car rental. But um, it's really about where can I add value? So these days, um, the role I play officially is that I still uh, hold the managing director and group CEO role in that Vroom group. Um, and what do I do? You know, I'm responsible for for vision, leadership, strategy, and capital allocation. Beyond that, the, the core functional areas we have, you know, a senior management team in place and who are responsible for for the key reporting areas and, and driving teams underneath them. Uh, and we've got teams all around the world, you know, different different time zones that work remotely and and support our customers with their car rental bookings. So my job is really to be the leader, tell everyone where we're going and, you know, make sure we don't run out of cash. And then when we, when we generate a heap of cash, try and figure out how best to redeploy that. 
And, and so, what, uh, so two questions around that. So you have a, so you mentioned a, a senior leadership team or a management team at least. It sounds like they're kind of running the day-to-day and you're kind of focusing on the whole more high-level things. How are they, how are they comped? Like they're obviously not, there's no equity because you've there's only two shells in the business. Um, what incentive structures do you have around those folks? But first, a quick message from our sponsor. Are you tired of traditional accounting firms that only focus on tax and compliance? Looking for a financial partner that can go beyond the numbers and reveal the story those numbers are telling? SBO Financial aren't your typical business accountants. We're your dedicated financial management team, empowering you to take control of your finances and gain clarity and confidence in your business. Sure, it will keep your books in order and file your taxes. But unlike traditional firms, we'll also go beyond financial hygiene to give you the forward-looking insights and strategies you need to grow your cash and profitability. Picture this, a team of chartered accountants, CPAs, bookkeepers, payroll specialists, and financial analysts all working together to help you grow your business. With SBO, you gain access to a collective team of experts and specialists, providing you with proactive advice and analysis. So don't settle for reactive advice. Stop looking backwards and start looking forwards with SBO Financial, your partner in financial management and growth. Visit our website or contact us today for a free financial health check at sbo.financial. Yeah, we're not particularly in, uh, particularly sophisticated in incentive structures because it's sort of a business where, as you said, there's two shareholders and it's very long-term oriented and very profitable. And I'd say the key um, the key difference is that when you run a successful profitable business you can afford to reward people well and those people tend to want to stay with you for a long time which is exactly what we're trying to incentivize so our incentive structures are not the typical sort of sti lti short-term long-term incentive plan or you know shadow equity or anything like that we typically pay healthy salaries and um, annual or discretionary bonuses we reward people for the work that they do um, but what the real incentives are is that people tend to get travel opportunities because we're an international travel oriented business. Um, we, you know, I think Naval Ravikant wraps it up best by saying long term games with long term people. Yeah. We are very much long term oriented and our strategy is that way too. So people know that if they commit to us, they can, you know, and provided they, they stick around, do good work, they, they have. Uh, a lot of runway to grow and develop with us and stay with the company because we're not going to disappear tomorrow as a, yeah. as a digital startup. Um, you know, my senior management team, I think the shortest tenure is seven years as in terms of my direct reports Incredible. and the eldest or the longest, I should say, is 12 years that's worked yeah. with me directly. Nice. Um, and, you know, and the average is somewhere in the middle. So, um the other key incentive that we do is is our culture and how we operate. So we tend to attract a lot of people who are sort of in their 30s to 40s, have a young family, are raising a young family and benefit from a great amount of flexibility and freedom, particularly when, you know, family needs to come first. And being a, a digital business, we can often allow that and, and do enable that. And, you know, so people find themselves in an environment where they're paid well, uh, they get to work with great people. There's exciting things to build, and they can look after you know the number one priority, which is family or kids, or you know, get to the concert, pick up the pick up the sick child, work from home if you need to, etc. So um, it's more about a holistic approach to making sure it's a great place to work, and um, and that's worked very well for us. 
That's great. You, you you mentioned two words which piqued my my personal interest, which was capital allocation and long term holding a long term play. I, I, could you unpack how you think about number one capital allocation across your multiple businesses? Yeah, capital allocation, I think about on two planes. So one is the obvious one of how do we allocate financial capital? And the other one that I think about a lot, excruciatingly amount, is is the opportunity cost of our time capital. Um, because we have a multidisciplined, really clever team of digital operators that can build new stuff. You know, it's the same team that that built and operates Vroom. We're involved in building Champ and Ratency and those software as a service products I talked about before. And so oftentimes it's a trade-off decision that we're trying to make strategically. Are we going to spend our time building another uh, SaaS application or are we going to you know, rebuild the Vroom stack or are we going to build uh, you know, a corporate account management tool or some other you know, solution? And, and so it's not as simple for us to say, all right, we're going to add 30 more people and we're going to do five things at once because we've learned that that doesn't work terribly well. You know, focused, small, energetic team does does far more damage than an enormous bureaucracy. Um, so opportunity cost of time is is a big one that I spend a lot of time on trying to figure out where our energy should be directed. And then in terms of capital allocation, we have a fairly unique um, situation, at least I think so, in that because we own and operate digital intangibles, they are very capital light. We don't own physical infrastructure. We don't own uh, rental cars. We don't own factories or machinery. And so the the cost of operating our business is people and servers and, you know, those sorts of consumables. But if you earn a profit, then, you know, the profitability and, and the margins can be uh, quite good over and above, you know, once you've covered those sort of fixed costs. So in our world of room, we do extremely well out of content. You know, it's also an SEO game. We we rank very well organically for, you know, Car High Brisbane, Car High Sydney, Car High Melbourne, those types of things, as well as other parts of the world. And where we outcompete our competitors is that we're not paying to acquire customers through Google ads or Facebook ads at extortionate rates. You know, as you can imagine, the the fees you would pay in those ads for something as popular as car rental is exorbitant. And, you know, in our experience, in most cases, it's unprofitable on a per booking level. It only works if you're investing to build brand or you're counting on winning repeat business, multiple bookings from that one customer that you acquire. So it's it's a difficult one to reallocate capital to growth in. Our growth play is also long-term. It's investment over the long-term in new content, in, in new ranking, in uh, membership programs and and keeping people away from Google, you know, coming directly back to us and things like that. And so what that really leads to is we end up with a whole bunch of free cash and not a really clear strategy on how to redeploy it internally. So, you know, we arrived at that point some years ago and ultimately determined that the best capital allocation opportunity at the time was to distribute the cash to the shareholders and allow them to, you know, apply it to a, a higher and better use. Um, in terms of the the returns that we could earn on the redistribution internally was difficult unless we were to, you know pursuing a strategy like building out a SaaS application, but that'd last maybe twelve months and then you'd be back to the same situation. So reinvestment internal was a challenge. Uh, reinvestment external was interesting in that you know when you start um, distributing fairly significant dividends on a regular basis, the first thing you do is 
lifestyle creep. <laughs> you, know, you get the fast cars and the and the nice house and and the lifestyle and all those things, and then you go, "Oops, hold on, we're we're all on the hedonic treadmill here. We got to try and rein this in." And you know, what are we actually doing to grow our wealth? And so, sort of once you get beyond that baseline of saying, "Okay, my 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 family's needs are taken care of," how do we now invest this? And and that's where you know I've morphed more into a holding company of sort of. A, a group of personal interests, a group of personal assets, um, and redistributing that cash back into similar business models is ultimately what I've ended up with. So what we know and understand really well is this concept of digital intangibles. As I opened this conversation with, it's it's either software as a service, information products, or some sort of commission-based uh, or affiliate model, which is what Vroom works on. And uh, we now look for opportunities diversified from car rental and travel but with very similar characteristics in other industries to redeploy capital into. And because we're entrepreneurial and opportunistic, that could be buying a business, it could be building a business, or it could be partnering with someone to seed or accelerate you know, an interesting business with those characteristics. So that's, that's at a very high level how I think about capital allocation. Yeah, it's wonderful. And uh, I guess um, coming from that digital intangibles category or yeah probably category is the, is the more correct term than asset class but it is probably the creme de la creme of all business models right as you mentioned the characters before um you know <laughs> capital light uh, being really important high gross margins i imagine you know SaaS companies would be doing nine percent 89 percent um affiliate revenue and it's just like that's cream um so yeah free cash is is just yeah too much to do with how do i allocate it um and i can see that that can be a problem so if you were to kind of step back and because you mentioned other personal investments and you know the, the hit on treadmill like if you step back and do you track your net worth or do you have like a spreadsheet where it's like oh, i've got you know 40 percent in um you know private companies i should probably diversify that how do you how do you think about asset allocation generally yeah good question so not in not in the traditional sense of tracking net worth just for the sake of of uh ego which is you know always the temptation yeah um you know and it might be a segue into into our other topic of discussion but i really think about it in terms of our family balance sheet and what we're trying to achieve from a from an enterprising family perspective and um what we're trying to achieve long term and so I, i guess you know one final comment i'll make on capital allocation and free cash flow is that I always fought against the idea of being a venture-backed tech company, you know, following the typical Silicon Valley model of, you know, raise, 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 exit, or raise, 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 bust. And it just never made sense to me, the the mathematics behind it. It was like playing the lottery. The chances of actually achieving unicorn status or, 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 you know, achieving escape velocity and IPOing was so incredibly low. And yet, all of our startup media, all of the attention was on, you know, this company just raised this round and and they're going to do this and it's going to change the world. And yet, you know, two years later, they didn't exist. And it was so frustrating to me that we weren't celebrating businesses that make money and were sustainable and were great employers and contributed to their communities and sponsored the local sports team and did all those things, you know. And to me, that was just... Um, that's just what made sense to me. That was just business. And, you know, you show up, you, you provide a service, you you uh, you do a good job of it. Hopefully you earn a return and you put some in your pocket, you invest for tomorrow and you do it again. And and so from my family's perspective, again, it was that long-term view of saying, I have managed to 
climb my way out of my lot in life, which was not a bad lot, but it, you know, I, I had a desire for more. Uh, I achieved relatively incredible wealth in my 20s and had absolutely no idea what to do. I didn't have role models. I didn't have examples. I, I had to really work hard to try and figure that out. And my kids today are growing up in a world that is so very different to to the world that I grew up at their age. And and that's just a consequence, not of intentionally being there to spoil them, but you know, I didn't go overseas until I took myself overseas. Whereas my son, you know, in his first year of of life did 50 international trips because we were in the midst of of building and growing and we we're traveling like mad at the time. And that was just a consequence of being with us, you know? And yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, naturally they're going to grow up in, in different circles with different things around them. And how do you reconcile that? How do you not raise spoiled brats? And so from a capital allocation perspective, I am trying to get back to your question. It's um, we're often thinking about it in terms of the different types of assets. So financial capital, absolutely. We're, you know, the predominant part of our wealth is in operating companies because that's where our, our deep skill set lies. But then of them because they're digital intangibles, none of them carry any debt. They're all, you know, um, cash flowing and and distributing dividends. And so then what do we do with that? And so, you know, we've redeployed quite a bit of cash in the property. We have listed investments, which we don't manage. Um, we have uh, some other sort of private alternate investments in into interesting things with other interesting people. And then we hold... Um, cash in you know sort of more more like um emergency cash buffers but also things for like education funds for the kids and things like that yeah and so we start and thinking the, in terms of priorities of of what we want to build for the family over the next few decades gotcha and so did, was that all that self-taught i think this probably lead us to our second part which i'm really interested about um because you've, you've got a podcast um the business of family and um you know it's it's incredible i've been i've binged it over the last five days in preparation, <laughs> preparation for this chat i'm just obsessed with it because i think um yeah so i'd love to kind of hear your story and transition from the conversation about you've come from you know fairly, fairly humble beginnings um and grown to this um you know remarkable i guess financial success outcome and you so your early 20s are yeah you got this money you got a family it's like shit what do i do with it now and how do i make sure the kids don't screw it up um how, how has that led to this new chapter of of your journey um being interested in generational wealth yeah yeah it's a great question and to add to that you said how do the kids not screw it up my my biggest priority was actually how do i not screw up my kids you know, yeah, right. so, so I'm now I'm in my mid thirties and I've got a couple of young kids and, and, um, you know, it's, you know, we spend our time skiing in Europe and, and doing incredible, you know, fun things that I could never dream of. Um, and, and still have to pinch myself and go, you know, we're, we're ever so fortunate and we have to be cautious, you know, COVID gave us a scare cause we're in travel and all those things. And that, yeah. that helped add a bit of humility to, uh, to what we were doing. Um, but look, my interest in, in generational wealth was more so an interest in business families. And as I said earlier, I was in search of role models. And again, I rejected the notion of, of Silicon Valley VC tech company, you know, we're going to raise, raise, raise and exit. At the same time, I also rejected the idea that in the media, all we ever see is examples of wealth destroying families or destroying marriages or destroying you know, circumstance. You, you hear all of the terrible stories of, you know, got rich and then you know, got the got the girlfriend forty years younger, or 
or the siblings broke up the family business because they were fighting over money or you know the inheritance went wrong and you can look to families like the murdochs or you can look to success examples like um you know there are so many all over the world but what the media weren't celebrating were the successes it was absolutely again in search of the niche in search of um, the outliers but in a positive way and so probably 15 years ago in my early 20s my wife and I started this discussion because we have worked together and, and I should have noted that she's contributed to help build these businesses as well um but we shared this notion of we want to build you know an amazing tight-knit family we want to build incredible wealth and we don't want those to be mutually exclusive we want to be able to do it at, at the same time and do it successfully and so we started researching how families with wealth have managed to perpetuate that for generations and uh and and the few examples we've found of people that have managed to beat the proverb shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations which you know in most cultures around the world there's a variant of that of that phrase and you know the typical notion is first gen makes the wealth second gen maintains it or grows it third gen grandkids you know, effectively spend it, spoil it, lose it in some way. And by the fourth generation, you're starting over. And I started finding the books, um, finding the blogs, finding the the people in my network, which were pretty difficult to find, I've got to be honest, because these people don't shout about their wealth, um, and tried to find positive examples who people had, had done that successfully. And um, about eight years ago through my business journey, I joined an organization called YPO, which I'm a, I'm a big proponent of these days. I'm heavily involved in it. It's called Young Presidents Organization. Um, you have to run a fairly substantial business in order to qualify. Uh, but a number of the businesses that qualify are family-owned businesses. And what I discovered was that um, there were a few of those examples of generational families that had either sustained their wealth and gone on to be enterprising in other ways, that founded and started multiple businesses across the generations, or they had managed to transition the business and the wealth across multiple generations, and it was one core family business. My personal interest was not necessarily in building a family business because, you know, I, I built stuff on the internet and it didn't exist, you know, so many years ago, and it probably won't exist in the same way in a hundred years' time. So, you know, you can't take that same long-term view. But I think about it in terms of, you know, how do I build a family office or a family enterprise or a collection of assets or portfolio that'll be you know, interesting and provide opportunities to my kids, grandkids, et cetera. And so long story short, I had always been researching this area, probably for the last 10 to 15 years, reading the books and, and trying to learn how to do this for myself with the main driver that I knew my kids were growing up in a completely different universe mm. than I did. And I just yeah. didn't know how to do it. And um, then I had always toyed with the idea of doing a podcast or some sort of passion project around it because I'd managed to meet a few of these families and I had to work so hard to get access to those conversations privately that I thought there's got to be people out me, little kind of like the, the me that wanted the keg for my 18th. I'm like, there's got to be some other people out there like me that want this knowledge for the first time. And, um, and when COVID hit, I was living in Singapore at the time. Uh, we had a, a fairly strict lockdown and I thought, look, if, if there was ever a time, like my travel companies have collapsed, there's nothing going on in my world. I'm locked down in an apartment in Singapore. Um, I'm going to do the passion project. And so I said, I'm going to do a 10 episode, you know, short little, during my 10 week lockdown, I'm going to do a 10 episode podcast. I'm going to reach out to a few families I know and record a conversation about the business of family. 
by the time I released the third or fourth episode, I'd been invited to sit on a global family business network board. I had been invited to other podcasts. People had asked me to consult. Um, I was being referred the most incredible connections to other families to hear their stories. And the thing just took off. Like I was absolutely right. Um, Similar to that keg story, it was just, it was immediately validated that there was a vacuum of knowledge in this space because all of these conversations and knowledge were trapped in generational families and they don't talk about them publicly. Uh, and I guess my secret source was my network and my ability to build rapport and safety so that people would share their story with me. And um, so today I've interviewed, I think, you know, 60 or 70 um, multi-generational wealthy families that are from anything from the founding generation right the way through to the seventh and eighth generation um, from right around the world, uh, many in the US, Europe, South America, uh, Asia, and, and Australia too. And learned that many of these families have exactly the same challenges. They all deal with them in slightly different ways. Um, but there were so many lessons and, and you know, little cheats and things that they'd learned and developed that we could borrow from. And that was the whole point. You know, I went in search of role models and I found some. And, uh, and it turns out lots of people wanted to listen to that too. So we've had an incredible journey learning with, uh, with all those families. That's amazing. Um, so, okay, let's talk about the tactics. So what, how did that project change the way you operate your business and family? And um, probably extend that, like what, how do you run it? You've got two young kids, um, you know, they're, they're living a, a very different life to, to what you do, um, what you did, sorry. What are you doing differently? Um, or, and, and what have you, yeah, what, what was it say, what are the top three things you've implemented? Um, Yeah, great question. So I started the project thinking, and obviously I'd already learned a little bit, but before I knew much about this topic, I went into it thinking, I need to learn the tax structures, the trust structures, the, you know, the asset protection. I need to learn how to, you know, manage inheritance and, and make sure the beneficiaries are taken care of, but you don't give them too much or, you know, it was, how do I control this from the grave? And then it was, um, it all about financial and, and business. I thought, okay, how do I grow the business or how do I manage, who do I leave the shares to? How do I develop succession? All of this stuff. And what I ultimately learned through all of these conversations and and journey with the business of family was quite the opposite. The things that actually worked and the things that people focused on were typically the non-financial human capital type uh, endeavors. And so what do I mean by that? Uh, you know, the first episode I ever published was a gentleman who wrapped it up beautifully by saying that, um, you know, incredibly wealthy, you know, was sailing the world in his 70s, had the next generation operating the family business, had spun out a family office, you know, had all of the trappings. And what he learned was he had to put as much effort into the business of family as he put into the family business. And that meant that they had developed a family governance structure, which included regular family meetings it included a family constitution or charter, which in, uh, encapsulated their family values, a vision statement for the family, effectively the rules of engagement. You know, their constitution would establish uh, how decisions are made, who gets to make them, um, who gets to engage with the family business. Key things like, you know, are spouses allowed to work in the family business? Are next generation family members entitled to a role in the family business or do they have to earn it? Um, how is compensation handled? Who makes those decisions? You know, like you very quickly get into the nitty gritty and go, any one of these conversations could lead to what blows up a family. And so instead of, instead of, um, leaving those conversations to come up when they come up, 
these families who had been incredibly successful with family governance had proactively pursued putting in place effectively some guardrails before those conversations ever came up. So, you know, even contemplating what happens if, you know, a next generation member who's due to inherit or, or who's due to be a beneficiary or due to be a member of the family council, which is kind of like a board of directors, what happens if they get divorced? How is the family estate divided? How do we consider asset protection or do we not consider that? Um, how do we protect the family's interests? Um, what should we do to develop the next generation? Do we invest in their education or do we leave them to find their own way? Do we you know, try and provide a, a guiding path or do we not interfere? Um, it, it, it goes on and on. But what I found was that the families who were extremely successful in perpetuating the family relationships as well as the wealth were incredibly intentional about it. Which unfortunately, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, you go, oh, that sounds like an awful lot of work. And unfortunately it is, you know, like most things in life, you want to be successful at something. It takes a lot of hours, a lot of work, but they did it. You know, they got the consultants, they read the books, they, they learned what they needed to learn. And then they just did it. They put the hours in, they had the family meetings, they had the difficult conversations over time because they were very intentional about what they wanted to create. And so, what does your family governance structure look like? That's my yeah, next question. I'm really curious. Great question. And so, you know, from my perspective, I get all this inspiration, but a lot of it doesn't apply to me because I'm not, you know, generation three in a in a family enterprise. You know, G three we call it in the industry. It's instead I'm I'm founding generation. At least that's how we refer to ourselves. Uh, you know, making significant wealth for the first time, at least in the in the recent lineage in my family. Um, and so, my wife and I are the are the matriarch and patriarch, if you like, with a founding gen. And our kids who are both still under 10 are the next gen. And, you know, grandkids are an awful long way away. But what we're starting to do is think very long-term and intentional about, well, what are the things that we can influence now? And, and what's going to be important to young children as they sort of come through teenage years and early adulthood? And so what we've done is we've sat down, just the two of us, like we, we, we've started having family meetings, as the, my wife and I, and even if we just sort of allocate half an hour or an hour, it's just this is the topic that we're going to discuss and we've developed a set of family values. And so this is actually what's important to our family. These are the values we're trying to instill in our kids. Uh, this is how we want to show up in the world. This is how we want to contribute to our community and, and our employees and others. Um, and we've also started to develop our family constitution in terms of what makes sense to us at the time, knowing that that's a living document that's going to have to evolve. But we've also qualified things like what we're not trying to do. We're not trying to build a single family business that's going to be here in 100 years' time. We've decided that's not appropriate for our personal circumstances. Instead, we're going to build a family office or a you know, portfolio of holding company um, with abundant opportunities, but also not a requirement for our kids to work in it. And this is one of the things I learned from the podcast in talking to families from different cultures. You know, If you talk to um, families from America, they're incredibly individualistic in their culture and they expect that the kids will go out and get an education, find their own way and pursue their own path, whether that's, you know, arts or business or other. Whereas you talk to families from South America or, or Asia, there's a lot more uh, honor code to it all. There's a lot more duty code to it all. And a lot of those family businesses are, well, you know, you're the, you're the firstborn son, you're yeah. following in my footsteps. There's no question about it. 
Yeah. And and you don't get a choice. You can't express your individuality. That's just that's just how it is. And and that's perfectly normal in those cultures as well. And then there's examples of, you know, different circumstances in Europe and, and other parts of the world as well. We determined that being from a sort of Anglo Western type culture, we celebrate individualism. We're happy for our kids to pursue their own path. We don't mind if they're not business people or, you know, want to run the family office or anything like that. We want them to be happy and pursue their passions. But at the same time, the family assets, the family wealth will support them. That doesn't mean let them live off it and be lazy. It means that we have the opportunity to invest in um, their education, their upskilling, the impact that they want to have on the world. And um, our assets are independent of the family, so they can be managed by others. Yeah, that's epic. So you mentioned that like, a lot of the lessons that you learned uh, don't apply yet, but you've certainly drawn um, things that you can apply right now. One of them is at that constitution. I guess there's obviously, oh, finally, we're having this conversation. I was at dinner last night um, with a couple of friends, my business partner and a good friend of mine is a lawyer. And we're talking about you know, how to avoid raising entitled slash spoiled kids, right? So I think my my upbringing sounds very similar to yours. You know, I had a very full childhood, but my parents weren't wealthy. We were probably middle class. Um, they both didn't earn more than 60K a year in, in salaries. I know that because I did the tax returns. Uh, but <laughs> I, I remember when, when I landed my first job in, in, in a white-collar world in the accounting firm as an undergrad, um, I was really shocked to learn that Moira, who was my senior manager, she earned 80K a year in salaries. And this is back in 2005, uh, 2005 I'd say. Uh, but I was like, $80,000, like, wow, that is an incredible amount of money. And I thought, wow, she's minted. I'm, I'm on the right path being an accountant, right? Yes, <laughs> she made yeah. money in good times and bad. But, you know, and because of, but because of that, that quote unquote humble beginnings, that I think that drove my desire to, to work hard to you know to to meet to be ambitious to you know build financial wealth for myself right and with and my biggest fear right i'm the thing i'm actually personally freaked out about is raising a spoiled child because my son who's only two years old xavier you know he will grow up in a world where you know we 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 will have nice things and we do have nice things and um i don't want to raise him as some soft entitled kids uh, some kid that feels like he doesn't need to work um, to, to earn his his place in the world, right? Um, that's my actually biggest fear. And he's two years old, you know, he's he's talking a bit now, he's running around the house and, you know, we, we, we buy him toys, you know, as his interest. He's into cars now, so we're getting like this, you've got this like John Deere tractor, which like you can dismantle and he, he learns he's got this drill where you can drill it back together. It's it's, it's really kind of awesome. the thing. But, awesome. you know, we're buying him toys all the time, right? And, yeah. you know, how... I'm almost this like fine line of how, how do you give your children the life that you want to give them, but not create that that soft kind of entitled culture? How, how are you thinking about that, and how are you managing that personally? Yeah, I, I almost want to say, ask me in 20 years how I did because you know, <laughs> we're all yeah. parents in their therapy doing, sessions. Uh, <laughs> exactly, exactly. We're all doing our best, and, and and in a lot of cases, our best isn't enough. But you know, how do we just not ruin them? Basically, so. Yeah. I had exactly the same guilt, exactly the same guilt. And I was really worried about it. I almost, you know, it was almost getting in the way of me showing up as a parent the way I wanted to, because I was so concerned that, you know, we were exposing them to things that I was never exposed to and therefore we're going to ruin them. Yeah. And then I was also guilty because I thought I've earned, you know, like I had goals and vision boards and I achieved things and I hit a target and, you know, I'd 
several years ago, I bought myself a sports car because that was my goal and all of these sorts of things. But I thought, oh gosh, what example am I setting? And and all of those things. And I ended up feeling guilty that I couldn't even live my own life. Mm. And you know, I, I was turning around, going, well, hang on, I'm I'm still a young man. I've got a lot of life to live. How do I not? How, how do I not stimmy my own growth? Because that's the that's how we got here. The whole point was personal growth and goals and ambition. Um, how do I not not um, stimmy that? But at the same time you know, raise great kids. And so what I did was through the business of family, I asked lots of parents about this question and, you know, how to raise great kids amid wealth. And, you know, a couple of people corrected me early and they said, look, Mike, you can't change your circumstances. You can't stop living your life because of your kids. You have worked incredibly hard to create what you have and your example of your ambition and hard work and energy is exactly the sort of things that you want to demonstrate to your kids. What you have to be cautious about is that you don't then just give them everything and every shortcut um, that that you've earned that they haven't yet earned, you know. And so they they sort of qualified it by saying, "Remember, it's your wealth, not their wealth," hmm. and they're not entitled to it. And it's important that you know. Yes, you can buy them the toys, and you know, in the next room from me here, I think I've got three hundred Hot Wheels cars or something. <laughs> yeah, it's nice, hard, yeah. not, hard not to buy them, um, but but at the same time. It, it comes down to how do you parent and what values are you transmitting? And I actually interviewed a couple of authors on the podcast, including uh, an author that specifically focused on raising kids amid wealth. And one of her key messages was that you cannot remove their learning around the ability to strive. You have to teach kids to strive, even if they're striving from, hey, we live in an affluent neighborhood with an affluent life and all of those things teach them to set goals, teach them to save, teach them the principles of compound interest, teach them the principles of delayed gratification. It might be in a completely different context to which we learned it when we grew up uh, and the rewards might be greater or the circumstances might be different, but it's more the values that they're learning and those skills that they're learning, uh, which is incredibly important. And then if, if we fast forward to examples of families who are already generationally wealthy, you go, actually, I found some pretty incredible people and some of my best mates are G2, G3, and they grew up wealthy and they seem all right. So how'd they do that? You know, like, yeah, they grew up skiing in Aspen. I didn't, but they seem to be pretty well-rounded, good human beings today, even though, um, you know, they had the the silver spoon, you could say. And, and so then I dug into those families and said, well, well how'd you do that? And ultimately, they were exposed to the grind. It, whether they did it or not, they saw how their parents built the wealth, particularly G2. You know, they saw the founders build the wealth. They saw how hard they worked. They they didn't see anyone sitting back and being lazy. There was always a demonstration of the family values. And those families too that raised really well-rounded kids spoke about it. They didn't hide the wealth. They chose to, you know, talk about it in a non-confronting way. It was an open discussion. We're happy to talk about it. It was the early beginnings of family meetings, um, but it was also the importance of sharing generational storytelling of we didn't used to have this. We have we have strived, we have had goals, we've had ambition, and we've built this from nothing. Now, that might have been telling a story of their grandfather or great-grandfather or grandmother who did that, but a big thread that came through all these generational families was storytelling. 
from the elders right the way through the founding generational stories. And it was so weird. I, I was two years into this journey with the podcast and doing all this research. I'd read all the books and I discovered something I'd never learned before. And that was that there is in fact scientific research now. They've actually done peer-reviewed studies that back up that kids that have a really good sense of where they come from and who they belong to and they understand their family storytelling. If you think about you know, elders and, and sitting around the campfire and sharing stories of immigrating to the country with, you know, nothing in their pocket to, yeah. you know, starting the market stall, which grew into the bigger business, which grew into the supermarket, which grew into the supermarket chain or whatever. Those stories help kids not only with their sense of belonging and, and who they are and how they show up in the world, it actually helped enormously with teenagers going through, um, uh, mental health crises and uh, resilience. It was this huge thread of resilience in feeling because we're all tribal. We all want to belong. Yeah. And yeah. oftentimes this friction with generational wealth is that one generation, if I come back to that proverb of shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generation, the big issue is that G1 and G3 don't have anything in common. Yeah, G1 yeah. built it from nothing. G3, through no fault of their own, grew up with all the trappings. And it was how do we get along? How do we how do we close that gap? How do we understand each other? And storytelling was the was the solution and remains the solution. And it helped build resilience and motivation and values in the generations that follow. So a lot of these families who are incredibly disciplined around having family constitutions, family meetings, all these family governance structures are actually incredibly focused on their family storytelling and documenting their history. That could be maintaining a family archive, you know, snipping things out of the media or every time the family's ever or the business ever appeared in the media, saving the podcasts they were on. It could be family interviews. It could be a book written about the history of the family. They're intentional about that because it's actually passed on as part of the education for the next generation. Fascinating. And I guess in this day and age, it will, it's it's much as, you know, I think if you've, I've, I've never gone through the exercise of trying to go through my family tree. I mean, my dad has, and, you know, he's going through archives at library, you know, looking at like, like nowadays is, you know, we are creating content right now that is sharing. You've just shared your story in the last hour or 10 minutes. Um, this is a piece that will fit in your family archive for, for generations exactly. to come. Incredible. Exactly. Um, that, that's, that's wonderful. One, so just one last question, just on the, the kids thing. So do you give your kids pocket money or no, no. and not is that yet. intentional or not yet is that uh, because they're old enough or my, my eldest is seven and he's uh high functioning autistic and so we've got you know different challenges there and he's not ready for it but we have gotcha. done we have done um you know chores for awards or can you help do this and and a lot of the education is around you know he's starting to get interested in money and how do i get money and rather than just saying you can get a job or you can do some chores or you can do this to help around the house. I'm also talking to him about you can build a business. How can you solve a problem that I have or how can you solve a problem that someone else has? And, you know, he's 70, he, he watches YouTube and he wants to be a YouTuber and all of those things yeah, like a lot of kids these days. Like, yeah. And we're trying, to, we're trying to share that, you know what, because he's obsessed with cars too and, and Hot Wheels, yeah. as I said, and he'll watch kids unboxing, you, you know, Hot Wheels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, yeah you have to appreciate that kid is sponsored by Hot Wheels. Like his dad's <laughs> not buying that many cars, you know, exactly. or, the, or the latest track or something. And so just starting those conversations of, of early understandings of commerce and, and look, he's seven, it's hard. Yeah, yeah but it's, little, it's still, so yeah. Little bits rub off. Um, 
and but we're talking about how do we create value rather than just yeah. purely hours for dollars and that's yeah i feel a big part of my parenting journey of, of how to do that is, is there um, is there a piece of you that hopes that he has some desire or interest in in the business part of what you've built look one of the things i i suspect and look it's a bit of a pipe dream but i suspect because he is um autistic he has absolutely no or at least at this early stage of life he has absolutely no social awareness you know he's not the kid that's that's making all the friends and popular and what have you he's the awkward kid that that doesn't really understand um you know his own surroundings and and social environment but he's brilliant with maths and numbers and and understanding logic patterns and things that are very common for autistic children and you know so my my wife and I have joked that our daughter is the social butterfly she'll she'll bring everyone together and our son will probably um be an investment banker or or run the family office or something <laughs> and drive the spreadsheets because you know black and white logic makes a lot a lot of sense to him so um of course you know maybe they'll both be mu- musicians or something else i got no idea but um yeah it's a it's a fun thing to dream about one of the things we've learned one of the things we've chosen to do with our kids which i also learned from the podcast interviews was this um practicing the concept of 18 summers and um it, it, we learned about it by an author of a book called the family board meeting which is not as boring as it sounds it's actually got a picture of a surfboard on the front the family board meeting uh, it's a short, sharp read. It's great, but it's all about how do we build super connections with our kids? How do we actually give them real focused time as parents rather than just saying, hey, you know, we're rich, we're successful, we're busy, we're ambitious, and therefore we checked out and you didn't know us. You know, that's probably one of my biggest fears. You know, we've talked about how do we avoid raising spoiled brats because of the wealth, but the the other big fear is how do we just, you know, fail fail to raise our kids because we're too busy and so if anything, I think that earning some wealth allows you to buy back time. And one of the most important things I can do with my time is spend it with my kids and, and be a good influence. And that led us to this, this concept of 18 summers, which is an appreciation for the finite time you have with your children, which is typically 18 summers. Now, that's a, a an American phrase, but by the time they reach 18, they're usually um, you know, young adults not interested in hanging out with mum and dad anymore. They're off with friends and girlfriends and boyfriends, uh, or they're off to college or university and pursuing their own life. And so, you know, in reality, the first year or two of infancy, there's not a lot you can do and influence there anyway. Um, and the last couple of years of, of teenagers, there's not much you can do. So it's probably less than 18 years, but it's this concept of the finiteness of time that we have to make real lasting memories and experiences with our kids, which just totally resonated for, for my wife and I. And it's completely shifted our perspective to on what we want to do with our wealth and help us get off that hedonic treadmill of consuming, you know, cool things. And so we've made a commitment and, and this is part of our family values, which sits in our family charter is that um, 18 summers is something we embrace and we choose to invest real time and dollars in family experiences, memorable experiences, rather than stuff. Experiences are stuff. Now, what does that actually mean? It means that you know I work myself to a point where um, during school terms, I'm super busy, but school holiday times, I'm really available for the family. 
And we have spent a lot of time building our businesses internationally. One of our strong values as well is travel and raising global citizens, people that have a great understanding, appreciation and respect for different cultures and different parts of the world. And so rather than saying, oh, I never got to travel as a kid, now we're saying my kids get to travel and we're going to expose them to that because something we believe in and we value and cherish. And so we plan a year in advance Almost every school holidays has a an adventure, an experience, some new thing that we're doing, um, and we spend serious dollars and serious time on the things that we're going to do together. Now, that might be, hey, we're going to do a hike and we're going to learn commitment and strive and, and hard work, or hey, we're going skiing in Europe this year, but you've got to manage the budget of euros and you've got to learn to say hello and goodbye and thank you in the in French or in Italian or what have you. And we're just slowly sharing little family lessons with the kids and exposing them to different parts of the world, different ways of interacting with people, but more importantly, creating those incredible family memories of having a snowball fight in St. Moritz. You know, and so that's amazing. I love that. It's way creating um, wealth, but be intentional about it. Mm, right, kids that's such, actually have to raise them. Yeah, that's such a wonderful um, lesson. So, what, what have you got planned for this summer? <laughs> yeah, this summer. So <laughs> it's funny. We spent a lot, a lot of years living in Asia in the you know the tropical humid heat, and and we hate it. So we love winter <laughs> escapes. So even though we yeah. talk about eighteen summers for us, it's eighteen winters. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we're, we're escaping the Australian summer and flying to the Northern hemisphere and we've got, um, uh, three weeks on the ski slopes in the Alps in, in Europe, in, uh, in Switzerland and France. And then we're having Christmas in Paris and, and then we fly home. So, um, you know, really, really incredible memories, a huge investment of time, dollars and, and energy, like, you know, my youngest is four and flying that far um, <laughs> and, and yeah, taking kids. That, yeah. But it, it's a choice, right? That, that's my yeah. point. It's framed by our family values. It would be so much easier not to do it. It would be so much easier to, you know, if I really want to ski there, it'd be so much easier to leave the kids with the grandparents, take off for a week and ski in France. But it's not about me. It's about us and, and showing up, making those memories. And so I don't want them to, you know, get to 15 or 16 have no interest in hanging out with dad anymore and all they've ever been is is spoiled but disengaged. I, I want them to have memories of us playing together and doing stuff together. And as frustrating as it is to teach kids to ski, um, it's it's worth it apparently. I've been told, so I've been told it's worth it. So um <laughs> so we persist and um we're trying to get the reps in by by increasing the number of days on the slopes because it's something we love to do and we want to share it with our kids. And I just think that'd be super to um you know, to be able to go skiing with my kids. So uh, we're, we're, we're putting the reps in and, and spending the dollars and hopefully it all pays off one day. That's awesome. It sounds like you've designed a, a wonderful life uh, for yourself and your family. Yeah, it's, it's just, it's actually genuine, genuinely inspirational. Yeah, well, come with us next year. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Chuck and Mr. Life and the two-year-old. Why not? <laughs> three-year-old, he'll be three-year-old. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you've got to choose to do it because it's not easy, but... Um, yeah. Uh, at the same time, it's just choosing to live, right? Rather than yes. just go through life and work hard all the, the time. Yeah. I spend a lot of time thinking about what what's it all for, and and the finiteness of life. And I want to be able to just reflect back, not not on my deathbed. I want to be able to reflect back next week and say, you know what, I use my time effectively, and I'm really proud of what we've done and and how we've been there for for our family. So, um, I think you've got to be living all the time 
as well as working hard and, and building for the future because you don't know how long you've got and we can talk generational wealth and long-term games and all those things as much as you like, but you can't forget to live in the moment as well. I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Uh, thank you, Mike. Where can people find you? Where can people learn more about you? Yeah, thanks, Jason. I've, I've loved it too. It's great to get an opportunity to jam on all these things that I love. So thank you for the opportunity. Uh, if anyone wants to get in touch, I've got a personal website, which is mikeboyd.com.au. Uh, if you like the idea of all this podcast stuff, you can check out the Business of Family on any of the major podcast networks that you enjoy. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter at my name as well. So um, come say hello. Love to connect. Whew. So I hope you found Mike's journey as interesting as I did. Learning how to create wealth is one thing, but understanding how to preserve it across generations is really, truly invaluable. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you could take a moment and uh, leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. We've got plenty more episodes coming your way, so make sure you subscribe on your app of choice. You can also find more financial insights at starknakednumbers.com or follow me on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening. I'm Jason Andrew, and this has been the Stark Naked Numbers podcast.